1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly toward you. For we are not writing any other things to you than what you read and understood. Now I trust you will understand even to the end, as also you have understood us in part, that we are your boast as you are also ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. And in this confidence I intended to come to you before, that you might have a second benefit to pass by way of you to Macedonia to come again from Macedonia to you. And be helped by you on my way to Judea. Therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? Or the things I plan, do I plan according to the flesh? That with me there should be yes, yes, and no, no? But as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Salvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Moreover, I call God as witness against my soul that to spare you I came no more to Corinth, not that we have dominion over your faith, but our fellow workers for your joy, for by faith you stand. Father in heaven, help us now as we study your word. Lord, may we peel back these truths that Paul has expressed in this letter. I pray you'll help us to apply these truths to our own heart. We thank you for uh, this the letter to 2 Corinthians, a very personal letter and a very practical letter for us. So work in our hearts, Lord, as we work through it. In Jesus' name, amen. The world's number one sport isn't football, nor is it baseball, nor even is it basketball. It is what we Americans call soccer. And I think the worldwide appeal of soccer is its simplicity. For all over the globe, in impoverished countries and in prosperous countries, in desert sands and on city streets and in vacant lots and on beautiful beaches, from the tropics to the Arctic, before cows in a pasture and before stadiums packed with people, all that is required to play the sport of soccer is a soccer ball. No pads, no glove, no helmet, no bat. Just a ball. But here's the problem. Not all soccer balls are created equal, apparently. In 2002, Adidas, the official World Cup soccer ball supplier, created the Fever Nova. What a name for a ball. This breakthrough soccer ball was supposed to fly a more predictable pattern. But the World Cup players complained. They said, oh, it was too light. They complained about this ball. So, for the 2006 World Cup, Adidas redesigned their ball. 
they constructed what they called the team geist. It was a ball made from a different pattern, but players again complained that the new design made it roll too fast. So for the 2010 World Cup, Adidas altered their ball once more. This time, the Jubilani version had fewer panels. But again, the players complained. This time, it flew too erratically. So in 2014, Adidas made the soccer ball to end all soccer balls. The brazooka. But guess what happened? Can you believe it? The players again complained. The brazooka got too hard, especially in cold weather. It lost its feel. Too light, too fast, too erratic, too hard. It's always too something, isn't it? Some people are always complaining. Adidas can't win. Some folks are never satisfied. And here's my point. What makes the game of soccer so appealing that all you need is a ball actually has sparked controversy and criticism by its players. Why can't simple things be allowed to stay simple? Well, I'll tell you the reason. Humans are complainers at heart. Man once lived in a perfect world, but sin spoiled those conditions. Our environment is no longer pristine, and rather than take responsibility for the imperfections we've created, we cast blame, and we scrutinize, we find fault, we criticize others to make ourselves look good. And this tendency even makes its way into the church. Paul was a simple servant of God. His motives were pure, his intentions were sincere, his words were honest. Yet the Corinthians refused to appreciate his simplicity and trust in his integrity. Hey, they were cynical Christians. Do you know any cynical Christians? These believers in Corinth were suspicious and hard-hearted. They assumed, like other supposed men of God they had encountered, Paul was a conniver and a manipulator. In the first half of chapter 1, Paul discusses the role that suffering plays in the believer's life and the corresponding faithfulness of the Father's mercies and great comforts. But now, in verse 12, he begins to respond to the complaints that his critics in Corinth had leveled against him. He pins these words, For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and more abundantly toward you. Now, ordinarily, Paul hated boasting. For Paul, it was always God be the glory. He knew all that he was, all that he had, all that he'd done and would do came from God's grace. And I agree with Paul. There's too much bragging in this world. Someone once said, no job is complete until the selfie gets posted. We're all too selfie. We forget it's the empty cart that rattles loudest. Paul would chime in with the prophet Jeremiah. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. 
But here, Paul's boasting has a godly purpose. For when it comes to Christianity, the message is always interwoven with the messenger. Thus, to discredit Paul was to cast doubt on the gospel he preached. So in defending himself, he was really standing up for the gospel. And Paul begins his defense in verse 12 with the testimony of a clear conscience. He says he was utterly truthful. The other day, I had a hole in one. Had a hole in one. It was a 170-yard uphill par 3. I hit my four hybrid, bounced two times, took a long roll, and dropped right into the cup. And if that's all I told you, then you saw my clumsy swing. You may or may not believe me. You would have your doubts. But that's not how I tell the story. My conscience forces me to be honest and to actually tell you the whole story. For one, I was playing solo. No one else was there to see me hit the shot. So I have no eyewitnesses to vouch for me. To believe me is to take me at my word. And I got to tell you this. I, I hate to admit it, but I got to tell you. It was my second shot off the tee. I'd hit my first ball in the water. So it was my second shot. It was a hole in one par three. <laughs> but it was a shot from the tee box. Now, I could have just told you I had a hole in one and left it at that. But you see, a clear conscience requires a few more details. And I hope it's because of my desire for a clear conscience that you'll trust that what I'm telling you is true. This was the way it was for Paul. Whenever he spoke of spiritual truths, he was completely candid. He was as frank about his setbacks as he was with his triumphs. Paul would have never lied or embellished the truth to win a convert or even an argument. His goal wasn't just to convince his readers. It was to do so while maintaining his integrity and a clear conscience before God. And this is what made Paul so believable. This is what gave him such spiritual authority. Here Paul boasts that he had always conducted himself in simplicity and godly sincerity. And yet not every Christian is as committed to personal integrity. In fact, there are people who serve God for tainted reasons. Some folks serve the Lord to be seen by men and impress them with their goodness. Others enroll in ministry to gain power or enhance some perceived importance. Some folks serve to relieve a buried shame, to try to atone for past evils. Or they'll serve to mask over their current faults. You know, it's easier to teach a person or to talk about Christianity than it is to really live it. There is one certainty, and that is when it comes to Christian ministry, it is motive that matters. Our motive is everything. And here Paul discloses his motive in his ministry. For conscience sake, he served God in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God. Rather than employ fleshly wisdom in his ministry, Paul focused on three traits. Simplicity, sincerity, and grace. Now this term, fleshly, 
speaks of a life lived apart from God. This is what the word means. Now, it does have sort of a sinister, even a sensual sound to it. Fleshly. Flesh. And that is sometimes what it means. But the term actually has broader implications. Flesh, in contrast to spirit, is what we are apart from God. When I die, my spirit will live forever. But my flesh will return to the dust. All that returns to the dust is my flesh. This includes any genius or muscle or desire or technique or philosophy or motivation that won't be found in heaven. It goes back to the dust. It's fleshly, not spiritual. Fleshly wisdom is the wisdom of this world. For example, the old adage, sex sales, well, it's true. Ads that appeal to fleshly lusts tend to grab attention, but it's not a good thing. Rather than encouraging us to think spiritually, those ads reinforce sinful perspectives. But here's my point. The term fleshly isn't just fleshly. I can try to advance a biblical obedience, but I can do it through fleshly wisdom. Case in point, every Christian should give financially to God. That's true. But I can encourage you to give in all the wrong ways. I can appeal to your guilt. I can tell you that tithe, if you're not tithing, you're picking God's pocket, man. You're a spiritual crook. I can make you feel real guilty. Or I can appeal to your pride. I can tell you that God needs your money. If you don't give, God's work is going under. You think you're helping God out. Or I can appeal to greed. I can fuel your greed. I can tell you, wow, if you want to be rich, give to God. Give to God. He'll give back to you. And there is some truth in all these appeals. But if I share it in a way that pushes the buttons of guilt or pride or greed to prompt obedience to God, I'm conducting myself according to fleshly wisdom. Heavenly wisdom can share the same truths, but does so without shaming or pressuring people to obey. God's wisdom relies on His Spirit to convict and to convince. It emphasizes love. That he loves us so much that we should want to love him in return and be a cheerful giver. In fact, that's the wisdom Paul will use later in this letter. The church I attended as a child, we held annual revival meetings. The idea was to invite your friends so they could hear the gospel and give their lives to Jesus. That's a noble cause. It's a biblical cause. One revival, the pastor promised an autographed Braves baseball to the person who brought the most people to church that night. Well, I was a baseball fan. In fact, a big Braves fan. And I wanted that baseball. And so I lined up everyone I knew. Friends, relatives, strangers. It didn't matter. I packed several pews that night. And it wasn't because I desired to see people get saved. I wanted a lousy baseball. Sure, it was a biblical cause But the pastor's technique was fleshly wisdom, not godly wisdom. And here in verse 12, Paul assures the Corinthians 
that he's not trying to obtain spiritual goals through fleshly techniques and manipulations. He's relying on simplicity. Paul's strategy was to present the truths of Scripture as purely, as simply, as clearly as possible. Then let the power of God's truth, coupled with the conviction of God's Spirit, produce the results that God desired. You know, over the years, some Calvary chapels have adopted the motto, simply teaching the Word of God simply. I like that, but it can be confused. That doesn't mean that we're boring in our presentation. That doesn't mean that we steer clear of complex issues. It certainly doesn't mean that we're teaching in an eighth grade vocabulary, just being simple. No, it means that we explain the Bible as clearly and as effectively as we can so that it can speak for itself. We want the Bible to speak for itself. See, even in our modern age, it's drifted so far from God, we don't need to apologize for what the Bible says. We don't need to feel that we have to embellish it or soften it up to make it relevant. We believe that the Bible is timeless. It has a power and an authority all its own. All we need to do is to teach it in simplicity. But Paul also relied on godly sincerity. For his ministry wasn't just about teaching God's word, it was about living God's word as well. See, before Paul was a salesman, he was a satisfied customer. He didn't peddle what he hadn't practiced. And before you become a spokesman for Christ, I hope you first become his follower. I mean, really his follower. You know, often the person who rails against prostitution is the man with the porn problem. The Christian crusading against same-sex marriage may be the married person who's neglecting their heterosexual spouse. Paul spoke God's truth with simplicity, but first and foremost, he insisted on godly sincerity. So often in today's church world, we hear of pastors and leaders making excuses for their ungodliness. Oh, well, we're just human like everybody else, and I agree we're human. But we're also pastors. Whatever happened to leaders raising the bar to maintain their integrity? I need to insist on my own godly sincerity. People often ask, Pastor Sandy, what's the key to giving effective sermons? The answer is living it first. And this is what makes declaring God's word such a challenge. I always preach toward an ideal that neither I nor anyone listening to me has totally achieved. I like to put it, I'm always preaching over my head. None of us live up to it perfectly. There are times when I've preached on what the Bible says about a godly marriage, while at the same time I stood guilty of some ungodly attitude in my marriage. I've preached about faith that moves mountains, even while I was worrying about how I was going to get my kids through college. The pastor has to keep pressing toward the prize, even though he runs with a limp. And this is why the third degree ingredient in Paul's ministry was what? Was grace. Grace. Paul preached simply and he lived sincerely. His desire was to be like Jesus, but he knew in so many ways he failed to measure up. Thus, he relied on grace. Grace is a gift. 
It's God's gift. It's the favor and acceptance that God has concluded that on our best day, we can never earn. Everywhere you and I fall short, the grace of Jesus is sufficient to make up the difference. Grace makes up the distance between my worst and Christ's best. All that God asks of us is to trust in it and then to treat it to others. Paul's ministry was colored by grace. It motivated him. And it was the means by which he motivated others. Paul championed grace. He believed it and lived it. You know, sadly, our church today, our modern church is weak. We're impotent to make disciples, let alone alter our society, because we have relied on the latest and greatest of fleshly wisdom rather than follow Paul's model. We need to return to Paul's style of ministry. Preach in simplicity. Live with sincerity, and always rely on grace. And yet, despite Paul's integrity, the Corinthians had charged him with just the opposite. They said he was guilty of talking out of both sides of his mouth. He was good at saying one thing, yet meaning something else. They accused Paul of doublespeak. And I'm sure you know what I mean by that term, doublespeak or double talk. You know, language is supposed to convey a person's thoughts, but doublespeak abuses language. It's a tool of deceit. It uses words not to convey truth, but to mask over the speaker's true meaning. Here's some good examples for you. Downsizing. That's a nice way for your boss to say you're fired. Reducing costs. That really means cutting salaries. Senior citizen. That's just a gentle version of old person. Enhanced interrogation, that's PC for torture. My date was a unique man. That's a polite way for a girl to say, wow, that fellow was really weird. And in this political season, here are a few more. I don't plan to challenge the incumbent. Actually means I don't have enough votes to beat him. I was aware of, you know what that means, I deleted the email. And no decision has been made. That really means we've made a decision. We're just not going to tell you. Well, the Corinthians had accused Paul of this sort of double talk. But notice how he defends himself in verse 13. He says, for we are not writing any other things to you than what you read or understood. Paul had no ulterior motives here. When Paul wrote a letter, you didn't have to worry about reading between the lines or deciphering what he really meant. His goal was honesty and clarity. Paul was a man who said what he meant and meant what he said. Isn't that refreshing when it comes from a leader? Paul tells them, No, I trust you will understand even to the end, as also you have understood us in part. He's speaking here of the first letter he wrote to them. For the most part, they had understood it and they had obeyed his words. He continues, that we are your boast as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. In other words, in all Paul's interactions with the Corinthians, the goal was for him and for them to be proud of each other at Jesus' return, to conduct themselves with a clear conscience. And thus, he focused his ministry on preaching with simplicity, living with sincerity, and relying on God's grace, which are good goals for every ministry. 
In verse 15, Paul begins to answer a major accusation, a complaint, that the Corinthians had hurled against him. He says, And in this confidence I intended to come to you before, that you might have a second benefit, to pass by way of you to Macedonia, to come again from Macedonia to you, and be helped by you on my way to Judea. Now recall 1 Corinthians was written from Ephesus at the beginning of Paul's third missionary journey. At the end of that letter, Paul expresses a desire to visit them again. He spoke of his plan here in chapter 16, verse 5. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 5. He says, Now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, and it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you. And notice this. If the Lord permits. Notice Paul's big proviso. He was up front from the outset. He writes, if the Lord permits. I plan to make this visit. Obviously, Paul made plans. He wanted to come. And there's nothing wrong or unspiritual for you and I to make plans. I hope you know that. Pray, then plan. Just always leave the door open to God changing your plans. Often he does this. Inflexibility is a denial of his providence. God stays sovereign over our situations, and sometimes he changes circumstances to guide us. James 4 verse 13 teaches this. It says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Plan, but don't be rigid or dogmatic. The old Methodists had a saying, Deo Valente. It meant God willing. Whenever they would write a letter, they would end it by putting in the initials, DV, Deo Valente. They made it clear that all that they had discussed in their letter was contingent on God's overarching providence. But that's not how certain Corinthians saw Paul's aborted visit. They concluded he was just flighty. He was wishy-washy. You couldn't really trust in what he said. Some Corinthians were casting doubt on Paul's integrity and credibility. That's why the apostle responds in verse 17. Therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? Paul wasn't being flippant about decisions. He scripted out his ministry. He writes, of the thi- or the things I plan, do I plan according to the flesh? The critics said that Paul wasn't following God's spirit. He was just guessing. He was just following his own agenda. The complainers were implying that Paul couldn't be trusted, that he makes and breaks his promises at whim. They were saying, if we can't trust him to keep his appointments, then how can we trust what he tells us about God? Quite frankly, this was all just a cheap shot. I mean, the Corinthians were acting like babies. Questioning the standing of a man's ministry just because he wouldn't come to see them? Reminds me of a website. It's called teardown.com. Teardown.com. 
Apparently, there are a group of techies behind this website who wait for the latest iPhone or iPad or some other popular item to hit the market. And when it does, they are the first one there to grab it, and then they take it back and tear it down. They tear it apart. They break it down, and then they map out its inner workings. You can purchase an analysis of the product for a fee. They say for over 15 years, they have torn down 2,000 items. And sadly, I know churches who've been at it for even longer. Some Christians like to tear down pastors rather than help build them up. They're petty. They're critical. They're always complaining. You know, generally speaking, this is why pastors need thick skin. As they say, the hide of a rhinoceros. If a pastor doesn't develop a resistance to petty criticism, if he doesn't learn to let God defend him, and he feels it's his duty to refute every accusation, then heaven help him. Satan will target that fellow for more and more attacks, knowing that he'll keep him defending himself rather than get around to do what God's called him to do. As someone once said wisely, you take care of your character and God will take care of your reputation. You can't run around putting out every brush fire. But this attack on Paul was different. For by questioning the apostles' integrity, they were casting doubt on the credibility of his message, namely the gospel. And it was for that reason that Paul had to defend his ministry. And so he replies in verse 18, But as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. Paul wasn't the kind of man who said yes one day and then no the next. He was being painted as some discombobulated buffoon who couldn't make up his mind about daily decisions. He was anything but. Paul's integrity mirrored God's faithfulness. Usually his yes was yes, his no was no. You could take Paul's promises to the bank. And i got to ask you, is your yes a definitive yes? And is your no an emphatic no? Or do your kids know that if they just keep whining, if they just keep the pressure on, they can manipulate you into changing your mind? Does your neighbor want a signed statement before he really believes you? Or are you a person of your word? If you make a promise, can folks take it to the bank? Paul is saying that as God is faithful, he also is faithful. And Paul points to his own preaching as proof. In verse 19 he says, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus, and Timothy, was not yes and no. Paul was never vague when it came to his preaching. There was never any ambivalence or uncertainty or a lack of clarity in his message. In fact, one of the hallmarks of Paul's ministry was the definitiveness of the truths that he preached. He says in verse 20, But in him was yes, for all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him amen to the glory of God through us. See, here's where Paul got dogmatic, not in his planning, but in his preaching. Granted, the meaning of some Bible passages are hard to pin down. Some verses lend themselves to multiple interpretations and uneasy applications. There are passages where it's wise not to be too adamant. But those verses are the exception rather than the rule. 
For here Paul declares the promises of God in Christ are yes and in him amen. When it comes to the claims of Jesus and the gospel, there's certainty. Thus, when we speak of Jesus, we should never leave, leave any doubt on the table. We should never speak of him with ambiguity. There should be a boldness and a confidence and an unequivocalness about what we preach. Never think of our Lord Jesus as a maybe or as just another option or maybe an I think or perhaps a it might. No, when you speak of Jesus, do so with assurance. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. Revelation 3 verse 14 refers to Jesus as the amen, the faithful and true witness. The word amen is an affirmation. This is how we punctuate our faith and God's truth. We say amen. It means so be it, right on. Amen is a spiritual exclamation point. And Jesus is our amen. Prior to the coming of Jesus, some of God's promises seemed like pie-in-the-sky impossibilities. How could God love the sinner and judge sin at the same time? How could Messiah be both king and servant? As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, we see in a mirror dimly. But Jesus was God's solution to these problems. In fact, he's the solution to every problem. He is the eternal yes, the absolute amen. He is the so be it to all God's promises. Think of it this way. Jesus is the Father's yes man. He's the yes man. Whatever the Father wills, the Son now accomplishes. Jesus said in John chapter 5, I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Again in John 12, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. Jesus was always about his Father's business. He always took his cues from his Father in heaven. Jesus is the one who gets it done for God. As Paul declares, all the promises in him are yes and amen. Once I was watching Monday Night Football. I do that occasionally. And I was listening to some of the reporters. They were interviewing Houston Texans running back Arian Foster. In addition to Foster being a great athlete, apparently he's very well read. He's a bit of a thinker, a philosopher. In the interview, he said he enjoyed learning. Foster commented that he could learn from anybody. And I quote, After all, we are all just out here guessing. Of course, the announcers, they ooed, they awed over his postmodern observation. But as soon as he said it, man, I started shouting at the TV. No, no, we're not. With Jesus, the guessing is over. Jesus is God's yes and his amen. Jesus is the exclamation on all God's promises. And verse 21 explains God's yes in our lives. Here's what Jesus does in us through his Holy Spirit. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Notice the four things. He establishes and anoints, and seals, and guarantees. Here is God's yes in your life. Here is what you know to be His will. It's His amen. 
what you can count on him to do. And Jesus carries it out by his Holy Spirit. First, he establishes us. He connects us to God. When we give our lives to Jesus, we get tapped into God and into his church. The Spirit puts down spiritual roots in our lives. Then he anoints us, like pouring oil over the head of the high priest. The influence of the Holy Spirit comes upon us. A supernatural awareness now permeates our lives. Then the Holy Spirit seals us. Remember, Corinth was a port city. And on the docks, you'd find merchandise ready to be shipped to destinations all around the world. And each shipment was marked by the owner's seal. A seal identified the package and ensured its destination. And this is the Spirit of Christ's yes in our lives. This is His amen, what He is absolutely committed to do in you. The Holy Spirit's power in us is God's proof of purchase. It's His seal. His influence in our lives means we belong to Him and we are headed to heaven. Isn't that glorious? The Holy Spirit's peace and presence and power is also our guarantee. That term means down payment. Hope you realize salvation comes in installments. We get the spiritual blessings now, but so much more awaits. The Holy Spirit is our taste of heaven, our down payment on heaven right here on earth. The yes and the amen of all that Jesus promises us is made emphatic by the work of his Holy Spirit. I like those ice cream shops. I like those ice cream shops a lot. But I like those ice cream shops that have those little bitty spoons. You know what I'm talking about? They get those little bitty spoons that you can take them and you can dip them into the different flavors and you can stand there and you can sample the different flavors. I like to just nibble. For hours, I like to just sit, stand there and just, just keep nibbling. But you know, the shopkeeper knows that nibbling doesn't last long. For when you hit a flavor that you really like, it's like, yes, give me more. And this is another way the Spirit is our yes and our amen. Through Him, we can sample heaven's blessings long before we get there. Well, Paul has some more to say about his defense. In his defense, verse 23, he says, Moreover, I call God as witness against my soul that to spare you, I came no more to Corinth. See, Paul changed his scheduled visit to spare the Corinthians a rebuke. Realize he was ticked off with these believers. They were acting like spoiled brats and ungrateful kids. It's interesting to me, even a godly man like Paul got angry. And he knew that if he came to Corinth at that time, he would have given them a tongue lashing he would later regret. He didn't want his visit to end unpleasant and to produce hard feelings. And so he postpones his trip until the complainers in Corinth get their act together and stop their criticisms. Paul seeks their fellowship, not their disfellowship. So here's what Paul knew. The right word at the right time and in the right tone of voice can be a powerful thing. And thus, he was willing to wait. And I think his strategy is a good example for us whenever we have to say hard words to a close friend. Well, as soon as Paul wrote verse 23, he must have thought he was sounding bossy, for he sort of ends the chapter by writing, 
Not that we have dominion over your faith, but our fellow workers for your joy. For by faith you stand. Paul wasn't ordering the Corinthians into submission. He's not their Lord. He doesn't desire to push them around or bully these believers. He refuses to pull rank. Paul is just a brother, a caring co-laborer who wants to see a joyous church, not a band of complainers. The Corinthians might have tried to tear Paul down, but he was determined to build them up by strengthening their faith. And I hope that's our desire for one another. Let's not complain about each other. Let's not be critical. Let's try to build up each other's ministries and each other's faith. And when someone does criticize you, defend yourself, but do so with a clear conscience, knowing that you preach in simplicity, you live with sincerity, and you always rely on God's grace.